Gospel of Luke, chapter 9. Gospel of Luke, chapter 9. If you're using a pew Bible, it's page 867. 867, Gospel of Luke, chapter 9. Luke 9. We're going to begin by reading verses 23 through 26. Let's pray for help. Gracious Father, we have come to your words seeking to hear your voice. We desire to be fed by your spirit. So please give us that gift, that privilege. Lord, we don't want this to be just a, another dead ritual that we go through. We want to encounter you through your word. So have mercy on us. Give us grace to be awake and alert. Give us humility to receive uh, teaching and truth from your word. Give us repentance where we've fallen short, faith in your promises. Help me, Lord, to preach as one preaching the very oracles of God. And again, O Lord, come and work among us, we pray. Through Jesus our Lord. Amen. Luke 9, reading verses 23 through 26. This is the word of God. And Jesus said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. May God give us ears to hear his word. While it only existed for about a year and a half, the Pony Express has become one of the most fascinating chapters in the history of our country. Uh, and let me admit, I found this utterly fascinating. I got researching the Pony Express for today's sermon, and I kind of had to rein myself in. The thought eventually occurred to me, the church pays me to study the Bible, not the Pony Express. Uh, but it is rather captivating. The year is 1860, and our nation has a problem. Our nation is huge, and it spreads out from Maine to California. What's more, in the middle section, there's this huge frontier that's filled with mountains and forests and Indians and outlaws. If I need to get, say, a letter or a package from New York City to San Francisco, uh, how am I going to do that? There aren't any railroads crossing the nation yet. There aren't any highways crossing the nation yet. Uh, what do I do if I want to get, say, a package of cupcakes to my brother and he lives in San Francisco? It's a problem. Well, three businessmen have an idea. They think, you know, horses are pretty fast. What if we create this kind of relay race from St. Louis, Missouri, uh, which was the most western point that trains could go, to Sacramento, California? What if we create this kind of chain of young men riding horses at full gallop across the west? If we could do that, we could get packages, letters, uh, boxes of cupcakes from St. Louis to California in a matter of days. Well, many thought the idea was absolutely crazy and would never work. But these three businessmen were risk-takers, so they thought they'd give it a try. And on April 3rd, 1860, the first rider of the Pony Express departed from St. Louis, Missouri. Now, I want to try and give you an idea for just how crazy of an idea, crazy of a prospect this was. Take a look at this map here. From St. Louis, Missouri to Sacramento, California is nearly 2,000 miles. Today, if you drive that nonstop on major highways, it takes you over 24 hours. Now, imagine riding that on horseback at breakneck speed. 
You're going over mountains, down into deep valleys, crossing rivers and deserts. You're experiencing the frigid cold of the Rocky Mountains, the fiery heat of the deserts of Utah and Nevada. And again, there aren't really any roads to follow. I mean, you're, you're kind of going at it with a compass. Despite all of that, the Pony Express would complete their mission in just 10 days. That was average, 10 days. Every 10 to 15 miles, they'd trade out their horse for a new one. You know, horses can only gallop at full speed for so long. So every 10 to, 10 to 15 miles, new horse. Then every 90 to 120 miles, they'd pass the mail to a new rider who'd continue the relay. Once they got to Sacramento, they'd have about a 12-hour break before they turned around and then brought the mail back. You know, the folks in California want mail to get out to the east, so they did the entire thing over again. Now, all the Pony Express riders were teenage young men, and believe it or not, occasionally younger than that. Uh, do you want to know how young the youngest Pony Express rider was? Take a guess. 11 years old, which... I got an 11-year-old daughter. I, I couldn't imagine letting her ride across the Wild West on a horse. But, you know, different times, different life. What's his name here? Charlie Miller, hired at 11 years old, and he incidentally died in 1955 at 105 years old. Now, being a Pony Express rider was extraordinarily dangerous, as you could probably well imagine. They faced constant threats from hostile Indians who actually killed several of them. There were snakes and bears and wolves and mountain lions. There were common accidents, like getting bucked off your horse. Sadly, there are a couple of stories of times where the horse stumbled, guy fell off, and then the horse fell on him and crushed him. There was harsh weather, outlaws and bandits, sickness and injury, and also the very real danger of freezing to death in the mountains. So, I mean, we're talking about unbelievable danger, especially compared to today. We're almost done with my long introduction, but I want to show you two historical documents relevant to the Pony Express. The first, you may have seen this before, but this is the advertisement that they used to try to get young men to volunteer for the Pony Express. I find this uh, rather fascinating. It says, wanted young, skinny, wiry fellas. So if you're young, skinny, wiry fella, you'd make an ideal Pony Express rider. Not over 18, must be expert riders willing to risk death daily. Orphans preferred, wages 25 bucks a week, and obviously you can contact the Pony Express stables. It's not exactly the way that we advertise jobs today, is it? Here's the second thing I want to show you that's maybe even more audacious. This is the oath every Pony Express rider had to swear before being hired by the firm. Again, I've, I've never had to swear this sort of thing in any job that I've ever applied to, uh, except for the church covenant here, but you know, it's a different story. But... Every Pony Express rider had to swear this, I blank do hereby swear before the great and living God that during my engagement and while an employee of Russell, Majors, and Waddle, those were the businessmen who started the Pony Express, I will under no circumstances use profane language. I will drink no intoxicating liquors. I will not quarrel or fight with any other employee of the firm. And that in every respect I will conduct myself honestly be faithful to my duties, and so direct all my acts as to win the confidence of my employers. So help me God. Again, a little different from how we hire people today. Now, based on everything that I've just told you, you might be tempted to think that nobody in their right mind would want to be a Pony Express rider. I mean, given all the dangers, all the difficulties, this crazy oath they made you swear, uh, given Indian attacks and bears, I mean, you'd think nobody would want to be a Pony Express rider, right? 
But here's the fascinating thing. The Pony Express never lacked willing riders. In its 18 months, it employed nearly 300 young men. And get this, there was always a long waiting list of young guys that wanted to be employed but couldn't be employed by the Pony Express. It became a badge of honor to be a Pony Express rider, and there are plenty of stories about guys lying, claiming that they were Pony Express riders and actually weren't. It was just so highly esteemed that that's what happened. Now, the Pony Express illustrates a very important principle. In general, people will naturally rise to a challenge. Obviously not everybody, and not obviously every single challenge, but in general, people will naturally rise to a challenge. We want to take on that which is difficult, that which is demanding, that which is ambitious. I actually think this is part of what it means to be made in the image of God. We're made to solve problems and overcome difficulties. But at the same time, if we water things down, dumb things down, try to make life as easy as conceivably possible, people won't be interested. Now, contrast everything that I've been saying here with how American Christianity has presented the gospel over the last 100 years. If you know anything about Christianity in America since, say, the end of World War II, we have tried to make it as absolutely easy as possible to follow Jesus. Just pray this prayer and you'll never go to hell. Just walk the aisle and you can be sure you're going to heaven. Just make Jesus your best friend and now you can be happy all the day. We've diluted and diminished the gospel really to a blasphemous degree in an attempt to make it as easy as possible to follow Jesus in the mistaken thought that if we make it as easy as possible, maybe more people will want to become Christians. But you think about it, what has happened to Christianity in America over the last hundred years? The church has grown weaker and weaker and weaker. Fewer and fewer people are becoming Christians. Churches are just filled with false teaching, false teachers, false converts. The church today has absolutely zero impact on culture. We've got a massive mess on our hands, and I realize there are a lot of contributing factors here, but I do think that a large part of it goes to trying to make it as easy as conceivably possible to follow Jesus. Now, am I saying that we should tell people that following Jesus is nothing but miserable, that it's awful, that only and always suffering all the time? Of course not. Of course not, but what I am saying is that we need to be honest, we need to be upfront, we need to be biblical in how we offer people the gospel. We should say, yes, anyone can be saved, no matter who you are, no matter what you have done, anyone can be saved if you call upon the name of the Lord. And yet at the same time, realize that following Jesus is taking up your cross daily. Yes, salvation is a completely free gift that you do absolutely nothing to earn or deserve, but also realize that all those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Yes, Jesus can and will save the chief of sinners if they simply put their faith in him. But at the same time, realize that once you trust in Jesus, you are a soldier in the Lord's army. There are challenges, there are experiences, there are difficulties that you won't experience if you don't follow Jesus. And yet in the end, it'll be all more than worth it. What does it really mean to be a follower of Jesus? What does it really mean to be his disciple? What expectations, responsibilities, privileges, benefits, consequences are all bound up in this statement, I want to follow Jesus? Well, this morning, as part of our annual vision series where we remind ourselves of some of our foundational convictions, we're going to be intentionally thinking on this question. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? What does it mean to follow Jesus? And to answer this question, I have five statements 
And realize these five statements need to be taken together. One individually is insufficient. But I think if you take all five of these statements together, they give you a a fairly well-rounded, fairly comprehensive picture of what it means to follow Jesus. Let's consider them together. Statement number one. To be a disciple is to be a committed follower of Jesus. To be a disciple is to be a committed follower of Jesus. Now, this idea is implied in the very word disciple. Disciple, I don't know what you think of when you think of the word disciple, but the word means a follower, a learner. I commit myself to a teacher to learn his teaching and his way of life. This is why in the New Testament we read about, say, the disciples of Moses, the disciples of the Pharisees, the disciples of the Sadducees, the disciples of John. These disciples had committed themselves to a particular teacher to learn that teaching and way of life. This idea of a disciple being a committed follower also comes out in those passages where Jesus calls others to become his disciples. For example, in Matthew 4, 18, we read this. While he was walking by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. And immediately they left their boat with their father and followed him. Now these men, Simon, Andrew, James, John, they're called throughout the Gospels disciples. And as we can see, Jesus called them to literally follow him. He's going to walk this direction. You're going to follow in my footsteps. Follow right after me. That's what it means to be a disciple. From time to time, Jesus will throw the doors open and invite anybody, everybody, to follow him. For example, Matthew 11, 28, Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The metaphor is used there of a yoke. And I know that most of us aren't farmers, but I think we know what a yoke is. It's this big wooden thing that they put on the shoulders of an ox. And then the idea was that the driver of the ox could control where the ox went. And the idea here here is that when I become a disciple of Jesus, I put his yoke on my shoulders. He then directs my life. He guides my life. He says, jump, and I say, how high? So this then is a large part of what it means to be a biblical disciple. Jesus is your teacher, you are his student. Jesus is your leader, you are his follower. Jesus is the master, you're under his yoke. Now here I'd like to pause and just for a minute clarify the relationship between discipleship and salvation. Discipleship and salvation, there's an awful lot of confusion here. What I'm getting at is this question, are we saved, are we made right with God by obeying Jesus' teaching? Are we made right with God by following in Jesus' footsteps, by, say, obeying the golden rule, obeying the Sermon on the Mount? Is that the way in which I'm made right with God? On first glance, some passages of Scripture seem to teach this. For example, Luke 9.27, the passage we read, maybe your Bible's still open there. But Jesus says, If anyone would come to me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Very similar calls to commitment are found in Matthew 8, 10, 16, 19, Mark 8, 10, Luke 9, 18. Ask me for the references afterwards. But all the time, Jesus is saying things to this effect. Unless you follow me, unless you obey me, you cannot be saved. Now, what are we to make of these calls of discipleship? To whom are they spoken and what is Jesus demanding? Well, admittedly, there is a good bit of confusion here, and different people offer different 
solutions. Some claim that Jesus preached a different gospel than Paul. You ever heard that idea? I used to know an old pastor who taught this, that Jesus taught salvation by good works. Obey me, that's how you get to heaven. But then Paul comes along and he teaches salvation by grace. Well, I don't think that can be true at all. Paul summarizes his gospel in Acts 16.31 when he says, Believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Jesus summarizes his gospel exactly the same way in John 11.25 when he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? So however we answer this question, we can't say that Paul and Jesus preach different gospels. It just doesn't work. Others claim that these calls to discipleship that I just read to you, they're only referring to eternal rewards. We're saved by grace through faith alone, but rewards, treasures in heaven, are entirely dependent on works. Well, there is a sense in which that's true, and we can prove that from other passages of Scripture, but that can't be what Jesus is talking about here. The reason for that is because Jesus consistently says, save. Say, for example, Luke 9.24 again, whoever would save his life will lose it, whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. That word used for save there, it's the common word for salvation, and it's used about 95% of the time of eternal salvation, like rescue from the wrath of God. And what's more, he says, you'll save your life, not save your reward. So what's going on here? How can Jesus, on the one hand, say, whoever hears my word and believes on him who sent me has eternal life, and if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me? How can we harmonize these statements? Well, the way I've come to understand Jesus' calls to discipleship is this. These are not so much explanations of how to be saved, but descriptions of what the saved person should expect. Does that make sense? Not descriptions of how to be saved. This is not how you become a Christian. But once you are a Christian, this is the lifestyle you should anticipate, you should expect. So they're not the job application of a Christian, but the job description of a Christian. They're not the doorways into salvation, but the tests of the, the validity of your salvation. You follow? From cover to cover, the Bible teaches that salvation is all of free grace. If you're reconciled to God today, if you're forgiven of your sins today, if you're a child of God today, that's due in no part to any obedience of yours, no faithfulness, no works of yours. It's always and only a free gift received by faith alone. And here's why that's the case. You were made to know God. Did you know that? You were made to know God. That's why you're on the planet. That's why there's breath in your lungs right now to know God and to relate to him. And yet you've sinned. You've lived the way you've wanted to live regardless of how God designed it to be lived. You try to basically live as if there is no God when in reality he is a loving, gracious, heavenly father who delights to care for us. Now because God is righteous and holy, he will punish us for our sins. But in his amazing love, the eternal Son of God, Jesus, comes down from heaven and takes on our flesh and blood. He lives a perfect life of complete trust in and obedience to his heavenly Father. But then he dies on the cross as a substitute, bearing the penalty that we deserve for our sins. He bore God's wrath on the cross for all of those who would ever turn from their sin and trust in him. Three days later, God the Father raised Jesus back from the dead, to prove that what I'm telling you right now is true, he ascended to heaven where he is right now. Right now there is a living glorified Savior at the right hand of the throne of God. He's one day going to return to judge, and now he's calling us, every last one of us, turn from your sin, trust in me, be forgiven. Turn from your sin. Stop running. Stop trying to live life your own way. Stop, stop marching to your own drummer. 
Turn back to me. Embrace me and be made saved. Be made forgiven right now. Before we go any further, I would beg you to trust Jesus this morning. Like I said, the offer of full forgiveness, full reconciliation with your creator is offered to you right now if you'll but turn from sin and trust in Jesus. So right where you are, turn, embrace the Lord Jesus, believe on his death and resurrection, and be made right with God by grace through faith alone. And as always, if any of you would like to discuss these things further, need clarification on anything that I've said, would like somebody to pray with you, pray for you, talk to me after the service, I'll be at the front door to greet people on the way out. But trust Jesus now and be made now right with God. Now, all of that being true, this does not change the fact that those of us who do trust in Jesus are being called to a demanding commitment. It's a demanding, difficult life, and in some cases, even deadly. Let me give you an illustration of what I'm trying to describe here that I know has helped many before. I've used this illustration many times over the years, but I use the same illustrations many times because people find them helpful. Uh, But the illustration I use to describe the relationship between salvation and discipleship is the illustration of joining the military. Joining the military. Now, as you might know, the military is a demanding life. There are pressures, responsibilities uh, placed on the man, the woman who joins the military that the ordinary person does not experience, not all of which are fun. Certainly there are benefits to being in the military, but it's a demanding life that the ordinary people will never know. And occasionally being in the military costs you your life. But here's the thing. Does it cost you anything to join the military? I mean, do they make you pay money to get in? No. They take whosoever will may come. But here's the thing, because joining the military is joining a difficult, dedicated, set-apart life, that initial decision to join the military is often very difficult. You weigh it, you go back and forth for months, am I going to do this or not? Uh, Not because you think you're earning something, but because you know the life afterwards is going to be challenging. I'd suggest to you that becoming a Christian is nearly identical. Again, Jesus will freely, gladly forgive anyone, save anyone, whosoever will may come. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It's a free invitation of unmerited grace offered to all. And yet realize that once you sign on the dotted line, again, you are a soldier in King Jesus' army. You march to his orders, do his pleasure, serve him as Lord. Again, it's a demanding life that the world will never know. And because of that, that initial decision to trust in Jesus can be difficult, even though we understand it's purely by grace. So this is the first statement in answer to our question, what is a disciple? To be a disciple is to be a committed follower of Jesus. Let me give you a second statement, and realize the rest of these will be considerably shorter than the first. Second, to be a disciple is to follow Jesus into water baptism. To be a disciple is to follow Jesus into water baptism. Now to show you this, I'd invite you to look up here at Matthew 28. In Matthew 28, 18, we read this, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, this passage is well known as the Great Commission. I'm sure you've heard it called that before. In this passage, Jesus entrusts his church with the responsibility to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. For our purposes, I'd like to point out just a couple of quick things pertaining to baptism. First, notice the way in which baptism is a command of Christ. The Lord Jesus, the one with all authority in heaven and on earth, he is the one who says, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. Now, the reason I point this out is just to stress that though baptism is not required for salvation, make no mistake about that, it's not required for salvation, it is an act of obedience. 
Let me say that again. Though baptism is not required for salvation, it is an act of obedience. This is not some man-made ceremony that we just invented because we like water. Uh, you know, this is not something that you can just jettison or neglect because, you know, you're not into getting wet. Uh, this is not some sort of personal preference thing or one of those really obscure doctrinal points like who is Gog and Magog. No, we're talking about a command of Jesus. Therefore, to neglect or to refuse water baptism is to disobey Jesus, which is called sin. But additionally, notice baptism's relationship to discipleship. What's baptism's relationship to discipleship? Jesus says, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Now, if you look at this passage, there are two activities that make up making disciples. I'm to make disciples, but here are the two activities that I use to make those disciples. Do you see what they are? One is teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So what's the other activity necessary to make a disciple? Baptism. Now, I imagine most of us value teaching and understand that that's a huge part of discipleship. I mean, that's probably why you attend this church. You value careful teaching of the Bible. This is why we study our Bibles on our own, why we read good Christian books, why we attend Sunday school and Bible studies. We understand that if I'm going to follow Jesus, that means learning his teaching and applying it to my life. But notice that just as important to teaching... Is water baptism. To follow Jesus into water baptism, to make your commitment public, that is a part of the basic discipleship package. And realize that until you follow Jesus into water baptism, you haven't yet crossed that line in the sand to make your discipleship clear. Now let me be crystal clear as to what I mean by water baptism, or at least what we teach here at Trinity. In the Bible, water baptism is the public dipping or dunking of a believer in water, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This water baptism, it testifies and it symbolizes a person's faith in Jesus. Just like Jesus was dunked in the River Jordan, so also you, if you call yourself a believer, should be dunked in water in public to testify to your commitment to Christ. As we read the Bible, this is the biblical way for you to stand up and be counted, to make your allegiance clear, to tell the world that you're a Christian. And while, again, it's certainly not necessary for salvation, it is an act of obedience and part of what it means to follow Jesus in discipleship. Let me give you an illustration of how we understand baptism here. It's actually a police officer's badge. Police officer's badge. I'm sure you've seen these before. Now, when you see somebody wearing a police officer's badge, what does that typically communicate? It typically communicates that this person is a police officer. It's an external sign, an external testimony of an internal Identity. All right, think of, keep those categories in mind. External sign of an internal identity. Now let me ask you this. Could somebody be a police officer and not wear a badge? Of course. I mean, maybe they lost it. Maybe they're undercover. Maybe they're going swimming, something like that. Uh, but the badge doesn't need to be there all the time. Additionally, can somebody wear a police officer's badge and not be a police officer? Sure. Maybe, you know, maybe it's your Halloween costume, or, or maybe you're in a play or something like that. And yet, in general, if somebody's wearing a police officer's badge, that person is advertising, they are publicly proclaiming that they are police officers. That make sense? Again, this is how we understand baptism. Just like putting on a badge does not automatically make you a police officer, simply going through the act of water baptism does not make you a Christian. But at the same time, just like a true police officer will identify himself, herself using a badge, so also Jesus calls true Christians to identify themselves publicly through water baptism. 
Since this is the case, I am calling upon all of you who trust in the Lord Jesus, but for whatever reason have not yet been baptized, now is the time. Now is the time for you to stand up and to be counted, to make your faith commitment public. I'm talking to those of you who may have been saved five years, 10 years, 20 years ago, but for whatever reason have never been properly baptized. If that's you, it's time. I'm talking to those of you who may have been sprinkled as babies, christened as babies, and I know that other churches call it baptism, but we don't count it as baptism. It's time. And I'm also talking to those of you, and this is, put your thinking cap on here, you were baptized in the biblical mode, but you've come to realize that you weren't actually believing at the time. You know, you just got baptized to impress some girl or to please your parents or whatever. If you're in any of those categories, now is the time to step up and to make your faith public. So if any of you would like to discuss water baptism, begin a conversation as to whether or not it's time for you to make your faith public through baptism. Please, talk to me. You can talk to me at the door. You can fill out one of those blue cards and place them in the collection boxes. But realize that to be a disciple is to follow Jesus into water baptism. Quickly, a third statement. To be a disciple is to follow Jesus with his people. To be a disciple is to follow Jesus with his people. Now, for the sake of time, I won't belabor this. We actually talk about this quite a bit around here. But there are no Lone Ranger Christians. There are no unconnected, isolated Christians. If the New Testament is clear about anything, it's that true believers congregate in local churches. What did Jesus say in Matthew 18, 20? Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Hebrews 3.13, exhort one another every day as long as it's called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Hebrews 10.24, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Following Jesus is a community project and realize that if you abandon that community, pretty soon you're probably going to abandon the faith. Just the way that I've seen it work. Believers are a flock of sheep together following the great shepherd. And if you're not part of that flock, you've got no reason to believe you're actually one of the sheep. Many people ask the question, how do I follow Jesus today? I mean, if I lived back in the first century when Jesus was walking around Jerusalem, I could go and listen to his teaching and see his miracles and observe his way of life. But now Jesus is in heaven, how do I follow him now? Well, the main answer to that question is through good local churches. We follow Jesus today largely through good local churches where the Bible is taught, the gospel is proclaimed, where the members love one another and care for one another. So what does this mean practically? Well, practically what I'm saying is that if you consider yourself a Christian, if at all possible, become a formal member of a good gospel-preaching, Bible-teaching church. Let me repeat that. If you consider yourself a Christian, if at all possible, become a formal member of a good gospel-preaching, Bible-teaching church. Actually go through the membership process and sign the covenant and acknowledge its doctrinal statement and submit to its leadership and come under its discipline. Become an actual member. But far more than that, don't merely get your name on the membership roster. Open up your life to the church. Attend as many meetings as possible. Share your burdens and sorrows during prayer meetings. Pray with one another. Pray for one another. Uh, get together outside of formal service times and drink coffee together, read books together, help people move, move furniture together, go fishing together. You know what I'm getting at. But make the local church a dominant part of your life. To be a disciple is to follow Jesus with his people. So if you call yourself a Christian, is this true of you? Are you following Jesus with his sheep? 
Quickly, fourth statement. Fourth, to be a disciple is to make disciples. To be a disciple is to make disciples. Now look again up here at Matthew 28. Matthew 28, I'm going back a couple of verses, but in Matthew 28, 16, the Holy Spirit says this. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee. Oh, Matthew 28, if you would. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples. Now pause there. Quick question. Looking at verse 18, who, pardon me, 16, who is Jesus speaking to? It says the 11 disciples. You see that? It's interesting. These same folks are called apostles in plenty of other passages of Scripture. There are the 12 apostles. Judas hangs himself, but then there are the 11. These disciples are called to do what? They're called to make disciples. Verse 19, go therefore and make disciples. The idea seems to be this. You go reproduce yourselves. You're disciples of me. Part of what that means is go make other disciples. Reproduce yourself in others. Part of following Jesus is participating in that incredible work of helping others follow Jesus. Once you've committed yourself to him, you help others commit to following him. This same idea is found all throughout the book of Acts. Listen to Acts 11.19. Acts 11.19 says, Those who are scattered because of the persecution, and we know in context this isn't just the apostles, it's all the Christians. Those who are scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word. So it's not just pastors, elders, Sunday school teachers, deacons, missionaries. It's all believers speaking the word of God. This is part of the privilege of being a disciple. Now this great work of making disciples, it obviously begins with evangelism. Telling people about who Jesus is and inviting inviting them to respond. And hopefully you're brainstorming, thinking, praying, laboring to get to know your co-workers, friends, neighbors, relatives, uh, seeking an opportunity to introduce them to Jesus. But obviously, disciple-making doesn't end there. Once people trust in Jesus, that's really, in some ways, where the true work begins. We help people learn the Bible, learn sound doctrine. We explain what it means to follow Jesus in everyday life. We teach them how to handle money to the glory of God, how to use their sexuality to the glory of God, the Christian approach to work and integrity and loving your neighbor. We encourage disciples to unite with good local churches where they can be cared for in an atmosphere that encourages spiritual growth. And we'll do this over and over and over again until we see Jesus. Now, since it's that time of year again, let me remind you of an ongoing opportunity that we have here through which you can participate in this great work of making disciples. I lay this out about once a year, and over the 18 years that I've been here, I've had several of you take me up on it. But let me lay it out again. This is kind of a standing offer, but this is designed to help you disciple others. Ready? If you will, A, commit meeting regularly with another person, and B, commit to reading a good book with that person, our church will buy you both the books. Now, let me explain a little bit more what I mean here. If you'll, A, commit to meeting together with another person, it could be once a month, once a week, once a day might be a little much, but you know the idea. You're meeting together regularly, either for evangelism or discipleship. And B, if you'll commit to reading a good book. Now, here's the stipulations. First, that person can't be somebody in your family. Can't be your husband, wife, mom, dad, children, something like that. Now, disciple in your family is obviously incredibly important, and we're going to talk next Sunday. The the entire sermon is going to be about this next Sunday. But this is not that. This is a different opportunity. Another stipulation, the book you read has to be from either our recommended reading list on the website or our church library. 
Now, we have to rein it in somehow, just so you're not reading, you know, the biography of Harry or something like that. You've got to rein it in a little bit. So if it's on the website or in the church library. If you go to our church website, we've got about 150 good titles that you can choose from. You go to our library, and we've got several hundred good titles to choose from. One final stipulation. Just at some point, share with us how the experience goes. Maybe in Sunday school, Wednesday night prayer meeting, in your growth group. But just testify what the Lord has taught you through this experience. So if you do those things, find somebody to meet with regularly. Pick a good book. Tell us about it afterwards. We will buy both of you the books. Now you might be thinking, that's generous, buying all these books. Uh, well, truth be told, over the years, maybe a dozen people have taken me up on this. I wish there were more. But part of the reason why we do this is because we're serious about making disciples. We're serious about you making disciples. And we're serious about this because to be a disciple of Jesus is to make disciples. We're almost done, but let me give you one final statement in answer to this question. Finally and fifthly, to be a disciple is to follow Jesus unto death. To be a disciple is to follow Jesus unto death. Now, I've already read these verses before, but many, many times Jesus calls people to take up their cross and follow him. This is inherent in being a disciple. Coming back again to Luke 9.23, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And I love that daily there. That communicates so much. This is not just a one-time, I'm all done. Every day, I've got to take up my cross and follow Jesus. Every day is a new battle. Every day, there's going to be temptations that I'm going to encounter today. Every day, I've got to watch and pray. I take up my cross daily. Now, what does that phrase really mean, take up your cross? I know that many preachers try to spiritualize this and try to uh, make it mean that I give up something that I really, really like. You know, bearing my cross is giving up chocolate for Lent or uh, giving up, uh, you know, bearing my cross is like not using Facebook for a month, something like that. Those all might be good ideas, but that's not what Jesus' original hearers would have thought when they heard the phrase, take up the cross. For Jesus' original audience, there was only one meaning for this phrase, and I'll let commentator Artie France answer it. He says, the metaphor of taking up one's own cross is not to be domesticated into an exhortation merely to endure hardship patiently. In this context, and he's talking about Mark 8, it's an extension of Jesus' readiness for death to those who follow him. And the following verses fill it out and still in terms of the loss of life, not merely the acceptance of discomfort. While it may no doubt be legitimately applied to other and lesser aspects of the suffering involved in following Jesus, the primary reference in context must be to the possibility of literal death. So this is what it means to take up the cross. This is what it means to be one of Jesus' disciples. We go to war against the world, the flesh, and the devil. We are transferred out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of God's Son. Satan becomes instantly our mortal enemy, prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking to devour us. And again, realize that if you follow Jesus, you are joining the Lord's army. It may cost you everything. It will include suffering. It will include loss of temporal possessions, loss of reputation. It might even include death for Jesus in the gospel. Something I've discovered is that in countries where persecution is common, they don't really have a great difficulty understanding what we're talking about this morning. It just sort of comes naturally. Since following Jesus in their culture is more similar to what it was like in the first century, things just sort of fall into place. I remember distinctly hearing the testimony of a young boy who was saved in a Muslim country. I know I've told you this story several times before. Arab boy, maybe 10, 12 years old. He totally got that salvation was a completely free gift of grace, that he did nothing to earn it or deserve it. 
put no confidence in his good works at all. But the night he trusted in Jesus, he came to the preacher who had been preaching the sermon that led him to faith, and he said, you know what, tonight my dad is going to beat me. Tonight my dad is going to beat me. Now, he did not think that he was earning salvation by getting beaten by his dad at all. But he got that by trusting in Jesus, that's going to bring such shame and offense to my family that there's, there are going to be some costs here to following Jesus, and I'm not going to be ready for it. So in light of all of this, I need to ask you, my brothers and sisters, are you willing, are you ready to take up your cross and follow Jesus? Of course it is worth it. It is more than worth it. The sufferings of this present life are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. This light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And yet, nonetheless, will you follow Jesus if it includes certain suffering, certain loss in this life, if it means certain death? Will you take up your cross and follow Jesus? Now, to close our time this morning, this, then, is what it means to follow Jesus. This is the job description of the Christian. To be a disciple is to be a committed follower of Jesus. To be a disciple is to follow Jesus into water baptism. To be a disciple is to follow Jesus with his people. To be a disciple is to make disciples, and to be a disciple is to follow Jesus unto death. And in closing, I've got one simple question for you. Will you follow him? Will you follow him? Like we've been saying all morning, whosoever will may come. The invitation is open to all. Jesus will freely, graciously save all those who come to him by faith. You'll receive the full gift of forgiveness, the gift of eternal life, a new heart, the sure and certain hope of heaven, the gift of the Holy Spirit, so much more. He'll give all of that to you right now. And sufferings, persecution, hardships in this life, enjoy forever in the life to come. So now knowing what you know about what it means to be a disciple, Knowing now what you know about what it means to follow Jesus, will you take up your cross and follow him? Let's pray. Oh God in heaven, these are weighty topics indeed. Lord, we are totally inadequate to do this in the flesh. Lord, we, we would make a disaster of things instantly if it was all up to us. But we do thank you for the help of your spirit, for the way that he will give us all that we need to abound in every good work. So, Lord, in light of the weighty things that we've talked about this morning, please help us. Help us, Lord, to follow you, uh, to follow you for the first time if we've not yet put our faith in Jesus, to follow you into baptism if that's not yet taken place, to follow you with your people if we've not yet united with the local church, to follow you in making disciples of others if we haven't been active there, and to follow you unto death. Lord, for that's what it means to take up the cross. Please help us. Lord, we do thank you for the joy that there is in knowing you the joy in forgiveness of sins, the indwelling spirit, the certain hope of heaven. Uh, Lord, we do pray that you would give all of us an increased understanding of this joy and that that would fuel us through the sufferings of this present evil age. Through Jesus we pray, amen.